Pray. It is a privilege to worship you, O Lord, the true and the living God. There is none other besides you. I am God, there is no other, you have said. You are the sovereign one of the universe. You look... You are the ruler of the nations. You view the nations as a drop in the bucket and the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. Who is like unto you, O Lord? None. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you of what Jesus has done for us to redeem us and how the Holy Spirit applies that to us. For the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. We're in John chapter 16, and this afternoon we're going to take a look at verses 12 through 33. Now remember, in this chapter, Jesus has already told his disciples that he's not going to leave them as an orphan. And he said in earlier part of John 16, he says, I'm going to send you a helper, a comforter. And when I send this comforter to you, he's going to do three things. He's going to convince the world there in verse 8. He says, when he comes, he will convict or convince the world concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we took a look at uh, that last week. Now, in terms of sin, we saw that he convinces men of the guilt of their sin, which would, of course, then, or should, drive them to Christ. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then he will, the Spirit will convict them of righteousness in the sense that, as was preached on this morning, it's not going to be our own righteousness that's going to make it, He's going to show us our need for someone's righteousness to clothe us, which is then Jesus. And then the Spirit's also going to convince them of of judgment. And we see the Apostle Paul brings this out when he was in the great city of Athens preaching Jesus raised from the dead, of which they scoffed because the Stoic and the... uh, Epicurean philosophers, they didn't believe that there was life after death, so it was just foolishness to be preaching like this. But Paul says, I'm going to tell you what, there is a day coming in which the Father has appointed a man named Jesus through whom he's going to judge the world, and therefore you need to repent. And so that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's going to do this for them, now, if we look at verse 12 here, we see that Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, Jesus knew the mental state that they're in. He already had told them, I'm leaving you, which they didn't fully understand because they said, can we go with you? He said, no, you can't go with me now. Later on, you're going to come follow me, but not now. And they were sorrowful. Jesus could see it in the questions they asked. He, we know from the word of God that he, he understands our thoughts. So he knew what they were thinking. He knew they were distraught. But he says, a lot of things I, I can't say to you, but 
I'm going to I'm going to remedy that for you by the Spirit whom I'm sending to you. So the Spirit is going to do the work um, for them in a way, and that's why Jesus says, "It is to your advantage that I go away." He really is. And remember, he's already told them, I'm sending you out into the world as my witnesses, but let me tell you what you're, what you're going to be uh, facing. You're going to face persecution. He already told that to them in chapter 15. If they've persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So I'm just preparing you for that, as if they needed to have that added to their grief. <laughs> but Jesus says, I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. And so they're going to need the work of the Spirit in their lives. And so it's, it's, it is expedient for Jesus to be going away. Now, Jesus could have told them more about the plan of redemption um, regarding the cross, but they were not at this point not able to bear that even. And so the, the, vital, the vital role of the Spirit in their life, it's going to be this. Take a look at verse 13. It's a great passage. But he, he said, I, there's a lot of things I can't tell you because you're not going to bear up with them, verse 12. But, that's a transition. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he, he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, in this regard, the Spirit leads us into the truth. Well, what kind of truth do you think he's talking about? Well, later on in chapter 17, Jesus, when he's praying to the Father, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. He's going to guide you, Jesus says, when I send him to you, he's going to guide you to all the truth that you need to know. And we know that in one sense they have the Spirit. You can't be born again without the Spirit. But we know, as I've mentioned this before, Pentecost is one of the most significant events in human history. And Jesus is really going to bring this out to them as we're going to see in this chapter. When he comes, he's going to come to, it, to you in a powerful way. And he's going to guide you into all the truth that you need to know. You know, and one of the important things that we can derive from that in an application is there is a tendency for people to say, well, I'm, I'm going to be led of the Spirit. Okay, tell me more what you mean by being led of the Spirit. Well, I, I got this feeling. You got this feeling. I remember Joe used to say he had a, a sermon, <laughs> how to distinguish being led of the Spirit and heartburn. And there's a certain real validity to that. I mean, our feelings are susceptible to who knows what. And we can't depend on our feelings. We got to have a sure rock. We got to have the foundation of the Word of God. And we know 
that the Spirit will never lead anyone contrary to what is revealed in the Scriptures. And so I don't care about a, a prophetic statement that someone has. They can have a vision. It doesn't matter what. If it contradicts the Word of God, then they were not led of the Spirit. So the Spirit, Jesus says, He's going to guide you into all the truth. Now, what truths were the Spirit going to teach them? Well, for one, they were going to have to have to have a greater understanding of redemption that they really did not understand at all prior to him going to the cross. So, and, and we're going to look at some passages that demonstrate just what that impact of that Holy Spirit was, of the magnitude of it was, what it did to these men and what they were able to articulate. So that spirit, when he comes, he's going to anoint you. I want to draw your attention. Uh, We're going to keep coming back to John 16, but turn over to 1 John 2. And look at verse 27. Here, the the whole context of chapter 2 was of the importance of having the right doctrinal understanding who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh. And then we see down here, verse 27, And as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. Now, this is post what we see going to happen. Remember, Jesus says, when I send the Spirit to me, he's going to abide with you forever when he comes. So John is writing here in his epistle, this anointing which you received from him, you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. The Spirit will teach them nothing but truth. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when he comes to you, he's going to anoint you in a way heretofore you've never experienced. And we're going to see how that's worked out in the book of Acts. But I want you to turn as well over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul's is writing here to the Corinthians and he says in verse 10, starting at verse 10, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except for the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So what do you think the Spirit's going to do in the lives of the apostles? Reveal to them the things of the Father. Reveal to them the things that Jesus says, I told you about. The Spirit's going to do that. That's part of the ministry the Spirit's going to do in you. 
So what they, what the spirit, and how do we know what God wants? Well, again, he'll drive us to the word of God. He'll drive us to the inerrant scriptures is what he's going to do. That is what the Holy Spirit will do. And so the Holy Spirit being part of the Trinity in that intimate relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the particular ministry of the Spirit, now turn back to John 16, the particular ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus brings out. Well, first of all, he says, Whatever he hears, that is, whatever the Spirit hears, verse 13, he will speak. The Spirit is learning from the Father, okay? And will disclose to you what is to come. In other words, the Spirit is going to give you some prophetic powers, which we're going to see how that's worked out in the New Testament. But then he says, he shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. Here's one of the things that can help us discern some events, you know, among other Christians of different denominational persuasions, namely those who like to give an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Well, here's the thing we always got to keep in mind. The Spirit never came to bring glory to himself. The Spirit came to magnify Jesus, the Redeemer. That is what the Spirit's come to do. And not for everybody to say, talk about the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. No, the Spirit will always draw attention to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. And that's what Jesus said the Spirit's going to do. The Holy Spirit's going to teach you some things that You're sorrowful now and you don't understand, but he will teach you these things about me. You'll become one of the greatest preachers the world has, and we're going to see how that has worked out, particularly in Peter. The transformation of Peter is amazing from his denial of Jesus and 40 days or so later, in the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and what Peter becomes then is almost like night and day. So the Spirit was in the apostles, a spirit of prophecy. It was foretold that he should be, for example, the scriptures in Joel chapter 2, we won't take the time to look them up, but Joel talks about there's going to be a coming day when your your sons and daughters will dream dreams and see visions. Actually, Peter quotes that as being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, if you look at Acts chapter 2. So there's going to be a prophetic uh, part that the Spirit's going to play in the lives of the, of the apostles. And I'm not going to get into much about We are not in the age of the apostles now, so there is a difference. But what Jesus said, there's going to be, you're going to have some prophetic powers. We know in in Acts chapter, um, just real quickly, we'll look up a couple of verses. Turn over to Acts 20. Look at verse 23. 
Paul is talking about uh, his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. He says in verse 23, Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me, the Spirit testifies to me, this is Paul speaking, that in every city that bonds and afflictions await me. <laughs> in other words, Paul says, the Holy Spirit's already told me what I'm to expect. And remember, when Jesus saved Paul and in Ananias, who restores Paul's sight, Jesus is speaking, as it were, to Ananias and says, I will show him, referring to Saul, how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Paul always knew it was that. But that was a prophetic word. We know from uh, Acts chapter 21 and 11, when, when Paul uh, is on his way after his third missionary journey to go to Jerusalem, having collected uh, funds for the church in need, Agabus, a prophet, comes up and grabs hold of him and says, what's going to happen to him? You will be in bonds and you will be facing, as it were, kings. That was a prophetic word, and that's exactly what, what happened. And so all of that is due to the Holy Spirit when he's coming. We'll turn back to John 16, and we see Jesus here saying, a little while and you will no longer behold me and again, a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this he's telling us? A little while you will not behold me, and a little while you will see me, and because I go to the Father. Well, what Jesus is saying here, in a little while, by the way, <laughs> He knew, as he was telling him this, Judas with the Sanhedrin guard were on their way to arrest him. And he's only hours away of being arrested. And he says, and then you're not going to see me anymore. I mean, uh, you're going to be scattered, and I'm going to be crucified. So it's not going to be long, you're not going to see me anymore, but then you're going to see me shortly. Well, when? After three days? <laughs> After three days, you're going to see me. I will come to you. And then you're going to still see me in a little while because you're going to see me not bodily then, but you're going to see me through the spirit of what I'm about to do at Pentecost and after you're going to see me. So all these things Jesus said to them. And um, again, he's going to... Uh, reveal things to them. Now we look at, if you look at verse 19 following, Jesus knew that they wished to question him and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you will not behold me and again a little while you will see me. By the way, he was reading their minds. <laughs> he was reading their minds. He knew what was going to be. See, Jesus knows what goes on in people. That's why he spoke so harshly to the scribes and Pharisees. He knew they were dead men's bones. He knew they were evil men. 
and nothing would change them. They were dark because he could see in their hearts. He sees in everybody. He knows what people are thinking because we, we, we saw that already in John. He knew what they were thinking about him, the questions they wanted to ask him. Jesus said, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Now, he says, you're going to be lamenting and weeping. Now, the disciples are already upset that Jesus has said what's going to happen. He's leaving them. But they didn't fully understand that until it happened, until he was arrested. And then, of course, we know that Peter will deny him. And then when the cock crows... (laughs) Just like Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, then the cock will crow. And he denied him three times when he heard that cock crow. What did he do? It says he went out and bitterly wept. I said I would never deny you. I said I would die for you. Weeping. And then they were scattered because the Bible says, Jesus says, in fulfillment of prophecy, that when the shepherd is struck down, the sheep will scatter. Jesus quotes that Old Testament verse. He said, that's going to happen. And that's exactly what has happened. And where were the disciples during that three-day uh, period of time that Jesus was in the grave? In their house, hiding, wondering, what's the future going to be? And we know that they were doubting, Right? Because we do know, as Jess brought out last week, it wasn't until the women went to the tomb and came back saying, he's risen, he's risen. No, no, no. They still, there was a skepticism in their lives. They had to be greatly dejected. Jesus says, I know you're going to be sorrowful, but guess what? There's going to be great joy. Great joy. And in this regard, this great joy, turn over to to Luke 24. See, I told everybody last week, Jess, you're you're always giving a good lead in to to afternoon messages in in your morning messages because you talked about what happened on the road to Emmaus. So we're going to talk a little bit more about about that. So you got these two men, these two disciples, not among the eleven, walking along, and they don't <clears throat> they don't know for a while that they're walking with Jesus, because it says it was prevented them from seeing at that point. And then Jesus has to rebuke them. And notice what Jesus said to them. because uh, <clears throat> they said, Don't you know what's happened? This Jesus, whom we had hoped to be the Redeemer of Israel. And then that's when Jesus has to admonish them, saying, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ 
to suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He begins to say, it was prophesied, you should have known better. So he has a meal with them, we're told. Jesus has a meal with these two disciples. Verse 31, it says, their eyes were open and they recognized him. We've been, we've been walking with Jesus. And then he just disappears. So these disciples, they arose that hour, went back to Jerusalem, and then they found the 11, verse 35. They began to relate their experiences on the road, how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were telling these things, he Jesus just reappears miraculously in their midst. But they were startled, frightened, and thought they were seeing a spirit. Jesus says, I'm not a spirit. Feel my flesh. Touch me. I'm not a spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then it says, when he had said this, verse 40, he showed them his hands and feet, and then 41. And while they still could not believe, it for joy were marveling. In other words, as Jesus, they realize now we've seen Jesus. It says the joy filled them so much that they were just marveling. He is risen. He really is. The women were telling the truth. He's alive. He's right here in our midst. And we thought all hope was lost. They actually thought all hope was lost. Imagine I mean, you've been there at some point when, when things just seemed like, I mean, I don't know how we're going to get out of this one. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty bad. And then to watch God do something amazing, like provide for you, like I mentioned a little while ago, the joy that comes over you. This is real. This is not fairy tale. I believe in a real Savior who does, who's living now, who's doing these wonderful things. So their joy, but that's what Jesus said. I'm going to go away for a little while. You're going to be sorrowful, but then you're going to be rejoicing greatly. And the rejoicing was beginning to happen with them. And so we said, um, as you turn back to John, turn back to John 16. <clears throat> Now, he says, he puts it in verse 20. He says, you're going to rejoice and your sorrow will be turned to joy. That's what I've been talking about. And he gives an analogy. And what a wonderful analogy. Look, look at the analogy he gives. 21. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow. Because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one, no one will take your joy from you. Now, I haven't given birth, but Carrie Beth has. Kay has, 
Faye has, my wife has. And I think I could be safe to say 100% y'all went through some pain to the point, maybe doctor, you need to do something about this pain. But when you held that baby in your arms, it was different, wasn't it? You don't remember the pain anymore. Now you got this bundle of joy, a new life. What a wonderful illustration Jesus gave of the sorrow that they would experience of understanding that Jesus is going to die, he's going to be crucified, but then the joy, he's alive. And then Jesus says, this joy not only to see me, you're going to have a joy that's going to be with you always. How? The Holy Spirit is going to give you that joy. And he will never leave you. What a blessed thought. And so we see here Jesus says in verse 23, and in that day, you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Now, <clears throat> In that day, you're going to ask me no more questions. Well, what day is he talking about? Well, it has to be the day, first of all, of Pentecost, when everything changed. And all of a sudden, they have an understanding they didn't have before. They have an ability they didn't have before. They have a boldness they didn't have before. And now, as we're going to see, Peter, in his preaching, is putting together a masterful sermon on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, a masterful sermon in Acts chapter 3, and tying together the redemptive work of God and and the implications of that, the reason why you need to repent, they understand all of that. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit poured out on them that they didn't have of the magnitude before. And so what we see here, Pentecost changed everything. In that day, they came to understand why Jesus had to die. They came to fully understand that. And they came to understand, and they're not going to ask you any more questions. You don't see them like um, Thomas saying to him again, how can we know the way? They're not asking that anymore. Or Philip, Lord, uh, show us the Father. They're not asking that anymore. Or uh, anything of that nature. Why? The Spirit is teaching them. The Spirit is teaching them. The Spirit is bringing to their remembrance all the things that Jesus said. Because remember, he promised that. He promised that he would do that. Now, Jesus had already told them, you're going to go out as witnesses to me. And I'm just telling you in advance 
to expect to be persecuted because they persecuted me. And you're going to go out into the world and the world, the world is going to hate you because it hated me. But I'm sending you out to do a glorious task. You know what that glorious task is? It's recorded in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Well, it starts in verse 18. Jesus says, he came to him, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go you therefore and disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them, teaching them everything that I have told you, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. Now he said, when the Spirit comes, he would never leave you, right? And he's not going to leave his church throughout the whole history of the church until he comes back. He will always be there. And so they're going to have, well, if the task is to teach the nations everything that I have said, where are they going to get that knowledge from? Well, they're going to get it from the Holy Spirit. That's where they're going to get it from. Who's going to? Now, here's why. It's not going to be necessarily some mystical thing. What we see normally is that the Spirit reminds them, oh, yeah, Jesus told us that. I remember. Oh, yeah, I know what the Old Testament says. Now I get it. He, the Spirit will bring all of this to them, and that's how they're going to teach the nations. Now, Peter is a prime example of the fact that he's going to bring all things to your remembrance. And um, as I said, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches his great sermon says, actually, David, he understood in Acts 2 that David, he said, David was a prophet. David said one day, one of his descendants would sit on his throne. And Peter says, you want to know who that is? I'm going to tell you who that is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus resurrected from the dead. And Peter quotes Psalm 110. Well, he knew that Psalm 110. He sure did. And he says, Psalm 110, where it says, the Lord will sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool under your feet and thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. He says this, Jesus, this was part of the marvelous sermon. And then what, what, what happened when he preached that sermon? All those, well, we know 3,000 of those who heard him said, who were probably there calling out for Barabbas instead of Jesus. Some who were maybe at the cross uh, you may have brought that out this morning. You were mocking him. Probably some there that day. It says they were stricken to the heart and said, what do we do? Well, Peter says, repent and believe. 3,000 people converted, added to the church that day. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had come and now had empowered his preachers with a with a message that the Holy Spirit uses. You see, 
as we've mentioned this before, the preaching of men can't do you any good. The only preaching that does you any good is the preaching of Jesus. But Jesus does preach through faithful preachers. And when, the, when, when human preachers faithfully preach the word of God, here's what you can see. The Holy Spirit will take that faithful preaching. And what does the Bible say in Hebrews 4.12? It says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, driving down through bone and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Who's doing that? Who's taking the word of God and doing that in the lives of people? The Holy Spirit. That's who is then. How do those people, why did they repent? Because the Spirit convicted them. Did not Jesus say one of the things the Spirit's going to do? He will convict the world of sin. That's what he did. And then, so we got 3,000 people converted. I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 4. And we'll, we'll start at verse 1 down to verse 4. Now, I remember Peter, if there was ever a coward, it was Peter, right? <laughs> He said, I'm never going to deny you. Never, never. You can count on me. No, Jesus couldn't count on him. Jesus said, you're going to deny me, but I'm going to be praying for you, and, I, and you will be restored. So now here's Peter and John out preaching in the streets of Jerusalem. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the, the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed how many believed? Look at it, verse 4. 5,000. <laughs> I mean, we got the church growing by exponential growth at this point, 3,000. Now 5,000. At the preaching of the gospel? Yeah. And what made that preaching the gospel so effective? You guessed it, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Convincing men of sin, convincing men of righteousness, convincing men of judgment. And then, I like this, look at chapter 4 of Acts down here at verse 21. <laughs> well, verse 20, I think it's pretty, well, verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they said, John said, we're, we're not going to stop. He says, you want to bet? Watch what we're going to do to you. Okay, go ahead. So after threatening them further, they let them go finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people. And they were afraid of the people's reaction. Now, remember, already 8,000 people have been <laughs> believed in Jesus. So they were concerned about public relations. 
And then it says in verse 21, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle had been accomplished. Um, what's interesting here is that the, the Sanhedrin they couldn't explain away the miracles. They couldn't. But that goes to show the darkness of their heart. Even though they knew, just like they knew, when they couldn't explain away Lazarus rising from the dead. They acknowledged that a miracle had been done, but did that affect them? No, it didn't affect them. It affected other people, but not them. But you see in verse, um, let's see. I'll just leave that. Go back to John 16. Jesus says, and to this day, you haven't, I haven't, you haven't asked anything in my name. But ask, and what have you asked, you will receive. Now, I talked about a little bit earlier in John 14 when it says, Jesus said to the disciples, greater works than what I've done, you will do. And ask whatever you want, and in my name I will do it. Remember, the, 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 the important thing to know about praying in Jesus' name is to pray in a way that glorifies Jesus, it's what Jesus wants. And what does Jesus want? He wants the conversion. He wants people to come to repentance and faith in him. That's what he wants. So Jesus is saying, here before, you haven't asked anything. Start asking. Start asking, and I will do amazing things through your prayers. And he did through the apostles' prayers. And he's still doing that when we align our prayers up with the purposes of God, as I've said before, we have to line our purposes up because sometimes we can get all uh, off track as to what we ought to be praying for. But we're praying for the things that we know the Lord wants. We may not know how it's going to come about, but we may have confidence that the Lord's going to do something good. I'll never forget uh, whom I believe outside the Apostle Paul I think the greatest preacher after that ever lived was George Whitfield. And Whitfield says in his, his journals that uh, when John and Charles Wesley were converted and Whitfield, they were personal friends because they went to Oxford together. And so you got these three men. They said they would pray to three o'clock in the morning. And here's what Whitfield writes in his journal. This is before he engaged in all this open air preaching where Thousands, twenty, thirty thousand people would come and just hear him preach in, in Britain and in, in the colonies. Whitfield said, We prayed till three in the morning and then we went out believing that God was going to do something amazing. And he did. 
And so the Lord, but you see, I mean, they, they wanted to reach people with the gospel, and the Lord blessed it in a marvelous way. Now, Jesus says here, verses 26 and following, <clears throat> In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you, I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. The Father wants to answer your prayers, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father I have come into the world, I'm leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. Now, this is before he's been arrested. I'm going to leave you. In other words, I'm going to die. I'm going to see you again. I'm going to be raised. But then I'm going to go to the Father. That's what the ascension is all about. But I will come to you again through the Spirit. We're told here, <clears throat> the disciples in verse 29 says, Lo, now you're speaking plainly, Jesus, <clears throat> and are not using a figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things <clears throat> and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Now Jesus answered them, do you now believe, question mark? <laughs> they haven't been scattered yet. And Peter hasn't denied Jesus yet. Jesus already said he knew what was in the heart. In other words, the worst with them is about to come. But he said, I just want you to remember, I'm going to reveal things to you and your sorrow will be turned to joy. And notice what he says in verse 32 and 33 as we bring this to a close. Behold, an hour is coming and already and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home. In other words, in a few hours, you're all going to forsake me. You're going to leave me alone. Now, we know the agonizing thing about Jesus, the agonizing thing that he went through on the cross. These men whom he spent three years with, they all abandoned him. They all abandoned him. In his hour of need, they abandoned him. And we know that as bad as that was, it wasn't as bad as the father abandoning his son to be take on all the guilt of the world to be the sin offering and to turn his back against from Jesus so that he could bear the sins, experience what hell is because that's what Jesus experienced on the cross. He experienced what it is to be void of any of the love of God. Jesus experienced being forsaken. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew he'd been forsaken. But he had to be forsaken, right? So that he could bear our griefs as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It had to happen. But here we see Jesus in verse 33 says, 
These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Jesus says that you're going to, I, I'm sending you out here like, well, he did say this in Israel. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And you're going to be persecuted and you're going to be hated and you're going to be thrown out of the synagogues. He's already told them that. And those who kill you will think they're doing God a service like Saul of Tarsus did before his conversion. This is going to happen. You're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Take courage. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I'm alive. I'm alive. And I have sent the Holy Spirit into your life to abide with you always. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how bad it looks. I don't care how bad your finances look or how bad your physical health is or how disappointing you are in your children or whatever. It doesn't matter. He says, but be of good cheer, be of peace. I've overcome the world. I will see you through it. I love that psalm. <clears throat> I think it's Psalm 27, where Jesus, where well, the psalmist says, when we fall, God holds us by the right hand so that we don't fall headlong. Isn't that a wonderful image that he's got you by his arm? He says, when you go down, I got you. I got you. And whatever you're going through, I'm with you. And you can have peace in the midst of suffering. You really can. Because if I've overcome the world, you can overcome the world, not in yourself, but by trusting in me. And guess who's going who's gonna to enable you and I to have that peace and that courage to press on in the midst of great difficulty? The Holy Spirit. Now, you see how important the Holy Spirit is? See how important the day of Pentecost was? It changed everything. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, that you left the glory with the Father to come into this sin-ridden world and be humiliated for three years, starting with your conception. You took on our nature and you went to the cross and was obedient. But hallelujah, Jesus, you are risen. You're at the right hand of the Father and you are strengthening us right now. Oh, Holy Spirit, do this blessed ministry in the lives of all of us here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.